0: This episode of All the President's Minutes is brought to you by bellacatering.com.au. One of Sydney's best catering companies now pivoted to home delivery. While you're in Sydney, in the greater Sydney area, you must order some food. Who the hell wants to cook for the people coming to your house? If you got a little bit of extra scratch, get Bella Catering in. Guys, quick disclaimer for this episode. This originally was going to be the 75th episode of the show. It is not. It is very much a conversation that could have encompassed this entire scene. John Borson, the assistant to Alan J. Pakula, on All the President's Men is our guest. We talk liberally around the 75th and 76th minute. So if you hear me say 75th, it's just wrong. It is a 75th and 76th minute episode and very much a bookkeeper scene episode. So I just really hope you enjoy the show. Ignore the misnomer. And just relish the greatness of this film.
1: But I there is a mystery about good acting which I don't even totally understand till this day. And the more I'm involved with actors, the more impressed I am when it happens. It's good acting is like doing that, <laughs> two things mm-hmm. at once. It's It's an intellectual, rational thing in that they know that there are certain things they have to achieve for the story. And yet really good acting is emotional and it happens in an unconscious way and it's totally spontaneous. It just has to happen in some way. And that's a gift. Uh, I think that part of it is that Bob Redford and Dustin Hoffman wanted so much to be a part of the story and know what it was like themselves. They spent time with the real people when Bob Woodward and his wife first saw the film. She said, "You know, I began to lose track of, she said, of who was who because she said suddenly Bob got up and walked into the courtroom, and she said he got up and he walked out of the courtroom, and he, I suddenly realized he was walking just like Bob Woodward. It just, and it wasn't even conscious on Bob's part. He had spent time with with Bob Woodward. I kept started calling him Bob Woodford and Bob Woodward, <laughs> and uh, uh, because the two characters melded." Uh, Carl Bernstein now says that he sees the film and he now, when he thinks about what really happened, he thinks of it in terms of what it was like on the film and that's becoming the whole reality for him. It's, uh, there is a magic when, when you stand behind the camera and you see life take place on screen. You know you can guide the actors into the right areas of work and you can stop them when they go into the wrong areas and you can explain things to them. But finally, when life takes over, that's the magic and how they do that, it's very hard to explain, and that's the excitement of direct- part of the excitement of directing is to really see that happen. I was doing a scene, uh, one of the first big scenes we did in the film, we did in a tiny little house in suburban Maryland, and it was uh, the house of, supposedly the house of the bookkeeper for the committee to elect the president, who was the first big breakthrough they had, and one of the big breakthroughs they had, and uh, who had so much information, and it was just Jane Alexander who plays the bookkeeper. She's a woman who played Eleanor Roosevelt and Mm -hmm. Franklin and Eleanor. Wonderful Mm -hmm. actress. And and Dustin in the room, and Dustin trying to get this frightened woman to talk. And the suspense in there was extraordinary. I came back to the hotel to my wife after the first day of working there, and I said, I felt I should be paying $25 for my little Apple box that I was sitting on. Uh, Just the privilege of watching those two people work that way because you could just feel her terror at telling him those things, and you could feel how much he ached for that story, and the tension of, if I say one wrong word, I'm gonna lose her. And every time she said one more thing, he realized how much he knew how important she was, and if he lost her, he'd never get her back again, he might never get the story. Mm -hmm. And at each point you realize, if they didn't get this, they might not have gotten this afterwards, and this story never would have been told, that this story came that close to not being told, and I think that's part of the suspense of the film.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to All The President's Minutes. I'm your host, Blake Howard. Joining me today is a writer and a filmmaker, but what is absolutely incredible is that this man is the first person who I've gotten to speak to, thanks to one of our great guests, Kenny Turin, um, that has actually worked on the film. I could not recommend more highly his piece for the Los Angeles Review of Books, which is on its 40th anniversary, Notes on the Making of All the President's Men. He's an associate producer on the film, was intimately involved in how the film was produced, both shooting the film and editing the film and has kind of unparalleled insights to anyone else. But besides working on All the President's Men has novel called The Newsboy's Lodging House, which won the New York Society Library Book Award for Historical Fiction, has also had another novel, Pay or Play, the definitive send-up of Hollywood, has had an Oscar-nominated documentary, which he produced not too long after All the President's Men, Exploratorium. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my distinct pleasure to welcome you to a chat about one of the seminal minutes of this film, the 76th minute, the bookkeeper scene. With Jane Alexander, John borson John, thank you so much for being a part of the show.
2: um Thanks for having me.
0: So normally, right now, John, as as some folks who've been listening for all of the seventy five preceding episodes know that I would ask people about their relationship with this movie, but you have one of the most unique, if not the most unique, relationship with this movie at anyone um, I've spoken to. So it, it's firstly a, a, an incredible treat to. To chat to you today, um, why? Well, let me, why do you think this movie, besides yourself, why do you think this movie has resonated so deeply in cinema well, culture? Before
2: we get into that, it might help people to know what I was actually doing on this movie. Well, let's get, let's um, go with
0: that. Let's go with that first.
2: So, because that will make help people orient who I am and what's going on here. I basically was Alan Bakula's assistant on the film. Which meant I did a lot of research and I uh, was involved in finding all the video, for instance, and uh, sort of living the film with him. Um, and then when we got into the editing and post-production, I was basically in the editing with, room with him pretty much all the time. So I saw the film come together in post-production the way you, you almost never do because it's very rare to be able to sit with the director through the entire editing of the movie, which I did. Because we had two edit- we had two editors working, and we went back and forth between them. And he wanted my head in there with him. And then later, I wrote a, a movie, Dream Lover, which Alan directed and we produced together. So I had a, a reasonable insight into the way he thought, and we had a good relationship. So what I'm telling you comes sort of from that experience of having seen it as his sort of through his lens and trying to help him realize what he was trying to do. So I'm
0: sorry, what were you going to ask me now? <laughs> uh, no, look, that, that's incredible. I was just going to ask you, you know, your your relationship then is the most special relationship with this film of anyone that I've spoken to in that you are literally watching uh, Mr. Pakula assemble this thing and, and strip away all those unnecessary elements and find the film that he saw in his head as he was making it. Now... Is, is it even possible for you to sort of look at this film as, as a whole entity even this many years later and see it as something that people hold up and say, wow, this is an incredible piece of art. This is how it came together. Um, you know, is it, is it hard for you to sort of establish why this film is so loved or important or is it because your intimate relationship with it, you you sort of have a, an even more, uh, an even greater appreciation for why people consider this sort of a, an unabashed masterpiece?
2: Well, I think, uh, I think it is uh, a masterpiece, and I say that uh, very guardedly. That's a, I don't say that about many things. Um, and I've seen it from the inside. Um, so what I do find is that over time, you, you, learn more about, you learn more about it just by having seen it and shown it and see how the people react. For instance, I was teaching in Cuba and um, teaching screenwriting, and I brought this film out and I ran it for those students. Um, I didn't have a Spanish language version of it, but they, and they, some of them spoke Spanish, some English, some of them didn't, but it still had a tremendous impact on them, even though half of them couldn't even, couldn't really understand what was going on because it's all the talk and the technical and the names and stuff. But there's something about the gestalt of the thing, the way the whole has a certain, um, explores something that's very compelling. And the way Alan did it, uh, uh through the actors the way he used the actors the way the story structure does uh, did that and i picked this i picked this, this minute um because i think this minute kind of encapsulates the whole movie this minute can really show you what the whole movie is about and why it's important and why it's powerful so if we talk about this i think it'll become clear what i'm feeling about that and uh, maybe you'll agree with me maybe you won't um, <laughs> If you want me to jump in on that, I will uh, look if something else
0: you us to talk about. So that seems like the perfect moment for us to segue to the minute in question. We are now at the 75th minute of Alan J. Pakula's 1976 masterpiece, All the President's Men. For anyone who um, is, is not able to visualize things by uh, the time code, uh, we're literally with Dustin Hoffman's Carl Bernstein knocking on the door of Oscar-nominated Jane Alexander's The Bookkeeper. So if you're looking at your dial right now, it's one hour and 14 minutes. We are going to go ahead and watch the next minute, but – Because John is such a special guest, we are actually going to break the rules. We often do break the rules by just talking outside of the minute, but I'm going to allow for a formal breaking of the rules uh, this time around uh, because uh, this scene is so important and having John's insights about this scene and how it unfolds um, is is such an honour. So here we go. We are going to watch the 75th minute of this film and a few extra seconds on there. And we're going to come back and talk about it.
1: Hi, I'm Carl Bernstein of the Washington Post, and I, oh. just, I just want to ask you a couple of questions. Well, you don't want me, you want my sister. It's for you, it's Carl Bernstein. Oh my God, he's the guy from the Post. Can I just borrow one of Post, your cigarettes it. there? Sure. You've really got to go. Sure, could I just uh, get a match? I can understand you're being afraid. There's a lot of people up at the committee just like you who wanted to tell the truth, but some people wouldn't listen. Certain people have gone back to the prosecutors and the FBI to give information which they were never asked. You were Hugh Sloan's bookkeeper when he worked for Maurice Stans up at Finance, and we were just wondering if you were promoted to work for Mr. Stans immediately after Mr. Sloan quit, or whether there was some time lapse. I never worked for Sloan nor Stans. Uh, can I get you, uh, some coffee or something? Yeah, thanks very much. Door sticks. Uh, could I just sit down for a second? Sure, you can sit down, but I'm not going to tell you anything. Okay.
2: All right. So there you are. Okay. So there we are. There we are. Yeah. Okay. And, in my opinion, um, this is probably the most important minute in the movie. Okay. Uh, and I'll tell you why. Okay. First of all, um, it's right in the, it's almost exactly mathematically in the middle of the movie, right? It's a two hour, 28 minute movie. And that's one 14, according to my clock. Yes. Um, and it's, a, it's, it's a point where the whole movie kind of shifts. Um, this is the one thing about writing, you know, in general and, and movies, people talk about three-act structure and three acts, but in fact, that's not entirely the most useful way to think about this. Often uh, there's something that happens right in the middle of the movie, which is completely a game changer and pushes things in another direction. And um, this is one of those movies, even though, yeah, I mean, it, even though it's all people talking to people. Um, and uh, just to sum it up, what's happened is they've been following various leads and uh, getting kind of nowhere. They have a lot of disparate facts, but they can't do anything with them. And no one will talk to them. And just before this, there's a big sequence where they're looking, call, uh, where they're checking out, they have a list of all the people who work for the committee to reelect the president. And they're trying to find someone who will talk to them to tell them about the illegal things that were going on there. And nobody will talk to them. And there's 10, 15 minutes of the movie is them driving around and having doors slammed in their faces.
0: <laughs> it is. It and is. They just, go all
2: the way through the list.
0: It is just a chorus of doors slamming in in a variety of different ways, and then people saying, "I will not talk it's to a you." A variety I will not of talk- different ways. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so and finally, then they get stuck, and then they figure, "Oh my God, we, we better quit. We're dead." And, and then I think it's Woodward who says, "No, we just have to start all over again. You go back to the top of the list." And as they do that. The, Camera goes up, and you're looking at the until you have an aerial shot of their tiny little car lost in the huge Washington. And they're saying to each other, "Uh, What about the bookkeeper? And uh, Bernstein says, Well, I tried her, she never answered anything. And Woodward says, Well, maybe we should go back there and try again. So then there's this huge victory scene where you see how dominant and powerful the, the nixon is while they're trying to write the very things happening on tv and then so this is really their lowest point in the, in the movie until the very end where they're they're kind of everything has ended and they're stuck and then uh he and then he comes and knocks on this door and this is the scene that unlocks the golden treasures you know um jane Alexander got nominated for an Oscar for her performance in this movie and it was because of this scene. And the reason is because really her performance encapsulates what I think this movie is really about. And this scene plays out the whole movie. And by that I mean um, if you look at the, the last 10 seconds the ones that, that you very kindly added on are silent. But if you look at them in the movie they're a close-up of her. Okay, What's happened is to, uh, what happens in the scene is that her sister answers the door and lets in uh, uh, Bernstein and she gets, and then she sort of helps Bernstein get in the house and which is what that first thing is about that you, that you hear and what you see on her face is the combination of Annoyance at her sister, who's kind of like her uh, conscience, you know, making her do this, and her fear at, at trying to do this, and the and the emotions on her face about all the reasons she wants to do it and all the reasons she doesn't want to do it play out in that close up, and that's really what this movie is about. I think is what is that process—people talking or not talking and why—and. Um, uh, this this scene is the scene, and then the scene the scene is structured to lay out more and then develop this greater length. It's worth talking about too. Um, it's all the. I know people say this, and a lot of people say they were journalists, and this movie got them to be journalists, and that's why they wanted. Uh, they love this movie, and it, it, there aren't many movies. That make people want to do something for a living, and this is one of the rare ones. Um,
0: and, and especially, so, and especially to your point, John, you know, just to, to tack onto a couple of great points that you made there. Firstly, to, to speak to the last point you made is to show such a warts and all, thankless portion of this, going through the list of all of those Crete employees who uh, who continue to slam doors in their face and continue to put up roadblocks and continue to you know to 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 think about protecting themselves in the context of this industry and 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 their careers and and not speaking and then something as subtle as a gesture as you know so deftly does carl bernstein here hoffman's carl bernstein sort of just ask for a cigarette and then People's natural inclination to be hospitable, like in in the bookkeeper's sister, like can I get you a cup of coffee? Is is the big door opener? Like she's she's completely either a ignoring uh, Jane Alexander's extremely expressive face <laughs> that says do not let this guy in this house for like that one moment, and then in in in, a, in just a second moment there as well, she either ignores it or she just. She 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 doesn't pick up the cue. But then at least we get that wonderful beat, part of the extended minute that we've played here today, that extended beat of Jane Alexander's just like frustration at her but then willingness to sort of continue to have a dialogue with this guy without going all the way to having him kicked out of the house.
2: Well, I see, I, I see it as a, a little bit more going on than that because this is her sister answering the door. And these guys have tried to call her, don't forget, and nobody's answered. So. And what I see is the subtext to the scene. You know, is that the sis, this part of the scene is that the sister wants her to talk to Kyle Bernstein. And they've probably talked about this endlessly. And she said, "Don't. I will never talk to those guys. It's too dangerous." She gave all the reasons why she didn't want to do it to so her sister. So now her sister answers the door, and she sees Kyle Burns And she's the sister's thinking. This is my chance. I'll get him <laughs> to talk to my sister. So she, so she volunteered. Do you want a cup of coffee <laughs> to, to get him in the house? And and so they're like conspiring together, the two of them, against Jane. And it's interesting because if you look at the at the shot, you can see uh, where he's standing at the door when he's looking at her. Um, he she is standing
0: right um, behind him. Right,
2: right,
0: yeah, it's it's Jane actually.
2: Standing behind, um, she's she's standing behind a staircase. New the the staircase, and what it looks like is they're like almost bars in a prison. She's separated from them by this, by these bars, and as if she's, she's being held from them. And then she has to decide to come forward and come out of there, like out of her cage, to talk to them.
0: But, and it's it's, um, it's it's a beautifully composed it's a beautifully composed shot. It's like about thirty seconds. At twenty nine seconds is where I've got it freeze framed at the moment. Jane Alexander's face, you know, side lit, perfectly perfectly visible through the bars of those stairs. And as you said, you've got Bernstein in the sort of mid-ground and right in the foreground is a sister in all white. And they are—they seem like a team. They're like a buddy cop team, you know, behind, <laughs> behind the bars. And the sister is very much complicit. Yeah, if, you, if you're talking about just the bodies in spaces, such a great, you know, a yeah. great little uh, uh, team up here.
2: And if you follow that into the scene then, the next thing that happens is, is uh, Bernstein uh, this is at like 1421, she, he offers, she, she, his, her sister offers her Bernstein a cigarette. Bernstein of course grabs it. And then, but then what happens is it's this, the scene starts where he's, sta- he's talking to her, but he's standing behind the, the staircase again. So like, he's looking at her through the bars now, yes. he lights his cigarette and then he stands up forward. Now he comes out of the bars and now he's face to face with her. And now they're face to face and close up, and no bars between them. And this is when the scene really begins. Yes. So they're taking it, and, and her look, she was a wonderfully wonderful in this um, because you see all this going on in her face, and it's something that can't be described. You see, I, I would say, you know, as I was saying, people talk about this as if it's um, about reporters and journalists and finding the truth and all that, and it is about that. But that's not really what drives the movie. It keeps it alive. Um, they have this unrelenting push, and they need to know. And as you said uh, very very rightly that one of the great things about the movie is how much hard work it is to do anything. And, and that's one thing Bakula is very good at. He lets things take their real time. He doesn't speed things up the way people do in movies a lot. So, yes, you see all these endless and that was the issue in the editing was how do you get that feeling of endlessness without making the audience want to go to sleep. Yes. So but you have to all of that all of that but but and then they find someone, you know, and but what it's really about is why whether that person will talk and why they're talking and not talking. And every person they talk to, as you said, a variety of door slam in their face, but everyone is a different story. Everyone has a personal internal reason to talk and to not talk. And what the reporter has to do is play those against each other. And essentially, this is about the confessional urge about why, what makes someone, why people need to confess. Because these are people who are talking who have no reason to do it. They have nothing to gain from it uh, financially or in terms of career or anything. The only reason they're doing it is because they somehow think it's right. And. That's a very hard motivation when you have all the other motivations stacked on the other side, their job and their family and everything else, and maybe even their safety. So each of these people has a different reason for doing it or not doing it. This is the most textured and detailed example of, of a person being put through the ringer, so to speak, because it has the most beats and she's the most nuanced and it's the best written and it's also beautifully photographed. So... This scene captures that dance uh, between the, the journalist and the subject. And in fact, that dance is what the movie is about. And that's, I think, why uh, people wanted, made people want to be reporters. Not so much because of all the digging around smoking cigarettes, but because that moment when they can connect with someone and get them to say something they didn't think they would they wanted to say, but then they realize they kind of have to say. So that's my interpretation of the movie.
0: It's absolutely fascinating you say that because I think that, you know, when I look at why, when I've been asked, why am I doing this project? um, You know, I'm not, I'm not a traditional journalist. It didn't inspire me to do that. I'm I'm a person who is a, a film critic and someone who examines film. And I, I love that in these really, what you would say is like understated interactions are these titanic moral struggles, because as you put so aptly, you know people are being compelled you know there there is something morally right that they feel that they need to confess and that urge to confess in these scenes and it's scene by scene and it's even in interactions with people in their offices it's in micro scenes you know with um you know it's micro scenes that happen with Dardis and you know p- you know lawyers you know going on the record and and, and revealing sources etc and revealing information but this is such a this is the quintessential scene um because of 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 her position uh, as of this font of information and and also her determination not to say anything and determination not to even interact with these guys because it may scratch that itch for her to confess. Um, but, you know, absolutely. Right,
2: I, I think you're right. I think that's why she never answered his phone calls she was afraid if she answered his phone call she'd start talking to him and she didn't she was afraid to do that. Yes. So her sister decides for her, you need to do this. You know, you'll, you'll never you never live you'll never forget it. forgive yourself if you don't, basically the subtext. But yes, I think you're right. And and I think that's to me, uh, where Pakula was the perfect director for this is because that is what he's really good at. If you watched him with you know with Meryl Streep or with Jane Fonda and other movies, uh, both of them won Oscars with him. Um, he gives, somehow he gives actors the permission to explore those contradictions. And those, you're talking about the titanic inner conflicts, which takes time. And often in a movie, people are in a, they, the scene, they want the scene to move faster. You know, it's, uh, directors are known to say, that's great, just the same, but faster. <laughs>
1: yeah. That's
2: something you would never hear from Hollywood. <laughs> and Meryl, Meryl Streep has said, there's a good documentary on Bakula which is floating around somewhere. Um, And she said the great thing about Bakula working with him was that he would listen. That that everybody pretends to listen, but he really heard you. Uh, And that I think is very true. In other words, he encouraged them to, and this is true with Redford in this movie too, to reveal themselves in ways which actors tend to be nervous about. Because they don't want to bore the audience, they don't want to feel like they're hamming it up or anything. And if they do that, he would tell them. But but he lets them feel free to experiment and take their time. And so that this whole movie could have been a hundred minute movie. You know, I mean, like this is a good example. This scene because the next scene it cuts from this. She gets he, she gives them all this information, and the scene is about him drawing this information out of her. The next scene, boom, it cuts to him talking to uh, Woodward, and he's completely hyped up on coffee. He's had six hours <laughs> of coffee in him. And, yeah, and, and he's been. And he's spewing out all this information, all the exposition about who did what, and is it Porter, is it Magruder, is it this, is it that. And the thing about it is, if you, if you look at like television movies, once, they wouldn't give you the same information twice in a row, and rarely. I mean, if you look at a movie, something like Aliens or something on TV, so a well-made thing, what happens is, they would have him introduce, he, they would have Bernstein start talking to her and then they would cut to Bernstein finishing the conversation with his partner, saying, "This is what she told me." Yes. And the partner being all excited because you don't—it's boring. It slows the movie down. Anyone will tell you who writes, and it's in every screenwriting manual. You don't do that. You don't repeat yourself. The audience—what the audience knows is that's what you worry about. What the audience knows. What cooler got was that these scenes were not about delivering the information, whether it was Magruder or Porter or how many people have the, have the money. They were about the process of him digging it out of her and then the process of the two, of the, the two guys sharing it and building something else with it. So while on, on paper it looks like it's very repetitive, subtextually in the scenes it's not repetitive at all because they're two completely different kinds of scenes and they're both very emotionally powerful because we're identifying with the characters and there's a lot at stake for everybody.
0: How How is it working? Uh, I mean, it, the, the question that I've now got because you would know him more intimately is, is working on these scenes, working with these actors, were, when this film was being made and something that you sort of do touch on in the LA Review of Books, what was it about, I don't know, the alchemy of Alan's relationship with these actors and with these performers and with all of his collaborators, including yourself, what was it about his way, his ringmaster quality to get everyone on the same page at this and sort of really take this completely different storytelling tact? Like, you know, was that something that was like right there in the preliminary vision of the movie with Redford and Alan working together or was that something that really... In, in your mind was something that he was so intent on in and and, and uh, a sort of a foundational element of the story
2: well it, it's kind of uh, it's a bit of both I mean the, the truth is if you look at this movie it's extremely unusual and perhaps unique in a couple of ways first of all this is a story about a, a detective a, a crime being committed right a, and a the detective trying to uncover the bad guy and get the bad guy. You never meet the bad guy. Okay. No. you do rare. You see a couple of vague images on the screen. You never have the scene with the bad guy with a knife. You know, like the Marathon Man or something where they're pulling teeth out of <laughs> out of uh, Dustin Hawkins' mouth. They, they don't. they the, the bad guys are scary because they're above and invisible, and there are a few shadowy images of them on the screen. That is extremely unusual. Almost in, never heard of. That's what the other, I mean, because one, why? Because the, one of the main ways you get drama out of something like this is by having the bad guys, you know, plotting against you. And then you, you feel like they're, they're you see you how evil they are and you hate Blofeld. But the other thing that this movie has that those guys, uh, or doesn't have, more specific, specifically, is it, it has no private life of these characters. We never learn whether they have girlfriends or babies or their parents telling them not to do it. If you look at, for instance, um, the one uh, about Boston and the sex, uh, what's it called? Um, you know, the one the Oscar for... Uh, Spotlight. Uh, Spotlight, right. Um, you know, they have, they have relationships. They have family. And, and a lot of the movie, as any well-made movie is, it, gives, it humanizes the characters by giving them a context of giving you a reason to care about them because they have this mother or daughter or sister or brother, whatever it is. This movie doesn't do that. And that is an extremely dangerous thing to do, to try to do because that means your whole movie hangs on your story. You're not giving the guy a dog. I mean, for instance, in this, in this movie we had a, there was concern about that, but we shot some of that stuff. For instance, we had them driving around, uh, are scenes in the movie where they're driving around uh, looking together checking out the stuff like for instance in the bookkeepers in the uh, scenes with uh, the uh, creep list chasing down those people one of those scenes for instance was uh, Bob Woodward telling Dustin Hoffman about his childhood because how he became a, an investigative journalist this is when he was a kid his mother remarried and Uh, He and his brother, he was upset because he thought he and his brother at Christmas weren't given his presents that were as good as the presents that she gave the kids of the the man she married. She was favoring his kids over her kids. So he confronted his mother. His mother said, no, what are you talking about? So Woodward went out and he priced all the presents that they were given. And he priced all the presents that the other people were given. And he confronted her and said, look, you see, you were. So that kind of story, which he did very well, uh, would give you insight into who he was, right? Yes. Cut it out. We had a scene with uh, Dustin Hoffman, which was at his insistence. Um, he said he needed have a girlfriend. He needed something personal, right? So uh, they had a scene where, where he was sort of packing up stuff from his girlfriend's apartment. And uh, she's saying, where are you? I never see you. What's going on? And he sort of blows her off. Um, Gordon Willis, who, by the way, was another completely essential part of this picture, oh, absolutely and essential in his way, at Bedford or Pakula, he knew this wasn't going to be in the movie. That was actually a day that he called in sick. <laughs> um,
0: that's that's a great only, that's a great anecdote. That's the great anecdote in your article in the LA book. The the whole, on the whole <laughs> movie.
2: I know, and, and in fact, he was right. Uh, Did play the movie the thing had no didn't belong in the movie why because what's what's compelling one of the reasons you're so caught up and you say it's so intense is because it's monastic compelling drive these guys are just doing it nothing will stop them. there's nothing outside them it's just they're like locked they're locked together you know in this sort of in the cage together with with the um with the editors but that to to break and and that's Really unusual. I defy you to name me any other movie that does those two things together, and particularly this last thing. So this was, in a sense, Fakula's vision. Okay, I mean he didn't write it, uh, but he had to see that there was something there we could make a movie out of. and he had to uh, convince Redford and uh, get the writers to do it, um, and. It's, it's funny, you know, you, it's the kind of thing that comes out in the editing more than anything else because you don't know whether something can play, whether something can hold, whether you need something else. And that's why we shot those extra scenes as kind of like Band-Aids. But the movie worked well enough that they just got in the way. Um,
0: there's one... There's is that one helpful? That, yeah, oh, absolutely. I, I think any anyone who is a fan of this movie is... Um, is relishing this conversation, relishing everything you've got to say about it. Is there there was the sort of a moment you described in your great piece, which will be linked in the description of this and on our website. Um, but there's a great there's a great sort of moment you said that uh, Alan was in the editing room and you were together and you were editing editing the scenes together and you had these band aid scenes and there was sort of there was this hesitation like oh my god has this thing worked has has what we've produced in the day to day,
2: um,
0: you know, uh, um, where where does that moment well, come in? I'll, I'll, I'll,
2: I'll, I'll talk about. Yeah, that's a good, a good, good thing to talk about because it's right in this subject. It's essential to this. Because what happened was uh, he was shooting the movie, you know, and you shoot the movie, and while you're shooting it, the editor is assembling the movie. Yes. So he has Alan has in his mind what he thinks the movie will look like. This shot will go to this shot, and 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 the script looks good and the dailies look good. And you're thinking, oh, this is working really well, but you never really know until you see everything sort of cut together, whether the flow works and whether it adds up. So, and you can't have, don't have time to worry about that when you're making the movie, you got too many other things going on. So finally, when they were just finishing the movie, uh, um, the editor was, you know, had the cut already assembled because he's cutting while, while they're shooting the movie. So finally uh, they ran we ran the finished film but this is like a long version this is what the editor puts together he has to put in everything that's in the script and you know every beat and it, so, because then you start worrying about taking it out but this is the first rough rough cut so and it, but everyone was very excited because the acting was so good and images were so great and we looked at it and uh, particularly Alan, but all of us all kind of let down because it was very flat. It was sort of dull and plodding and um, it was not engaging. And, and we couldn't figure out what was wrong. So um, then we went back and put it on the Steam Deck, you know, which is an editing machine before video. You had
0: to yes. use
2: big machines. So, um, and we ran back. <laughs> For the folks, the folks it wasn't just clicking
0: a mouse, it was cutting. <laughs> Cutting reels of film. Yeah, <laughs> literally. Exactly, literally. Right? literally. Cutting
2: uh, that, physically cutting.
0: For, for, all, for all of us now who have the luxury of a Mac and just cut things on an iMovie or even on your phone, you know, the physical cutting you will never appreciate. And this is something that I'm still flabbergasted today. Um, I will never, you, you'd never be able to quantify what an art form it actually is when you're literally cutting the damn thing together.
2: Well, this editor was an artist. Uh, he worked with Sam Peckinpah, one of the great filmmakers of all time, in my opinion. Yes. And for instance, one of the movies they worked on uh, was *The Getaway*. Um, and uh,
0: Robert L. Wolf is it, his name. We've talked about him. Um, Bob uh, Wolf, right?
2: Yeah. I believe was, uh, he worked on *Straw Dogs*, and I believe he also worked on *The Getaway*. Robert Wolf, and we it was we had a because of time constraints, we took on a second editor who was also a graduate of Sam Peckinpah. Uh, and uh the two of them were working and they had very similar styles and they were very worked very well built together. There was never a problem there. But it was just a matter of time because don't forget, you physically have to cut the film and you have to cut the soundtrack and then you have to splice it all together and when you want to change something you have to undo everything. So it's not like now we just press a button. Yes. So looking at looking at the film and the soundtrack together, we realized that what Bob Wolf had done was he had uh that's what Sam Peckinpah does. But Sam Peckinpah likes to make his movies with a lot of little cuts because that gives you a visual momentum. Yes. Right? So, and, and and the way you do that is you 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 overlap the soundtrack. So when I'm talking to you, my last words are on your face, and then when you talk to me, your last words are on my face. Yes. So so that's called greasing the cuts. Basically, that means that the soundtrack, the piece of plastic that's the soundtrack. Is a is a little different length than the piece of plastic that's the film track, right? Yes. Uh, the film image, because you got. Don't forget, you're working double system here. You got a sound and you got an image. Okay, so and what they done? This is what what a professional guy would do to sort of speed it up, make it professional, make it flow. But in effect, what he had done is he would taken the conflict out of all these scenes because what what Alan said was, you know, that might work for Sam Peckinpah greasing the cut, but he said. If I wanted them both to be in the same scene, I'd put them in the same scene. Yes. Alan's way of working was, no, I want it's about the silences. It's about the moments. It's about what, what because the whole point is how hard it is to get this information out and the tension the tension in the cut what between what the person says and what the next person is going to say is what kinda of keeps it going. So he, so Bob went back and he put in all these little spaces and even though the movie was longer, it felt shorter because emotionally you were being sucked through it. Yes. What? A- and that was an education for me.
0: <laughs> I was gonna say, it, it's, it's <laughs> like, here's the rule book. And we're going to completely throw it out. We're going to add all the spaces. We're going to do everything that is antithetical to the speed and the motion and the kinetic energy of a Sam Peckinpah movie. You know, you're you spot on. He, d- he was on editing departments of The Wild Bunch and The Getaway and Pat Garrett um, and Billy the Kid. Uh, it, you know, incredible stuff um, uh, to be working on. Um, but, yeah, and that's clearly. He was also,
2: by the way.
0: Oh, no, sorry, go no, on, please.
2: Yeah, I mean, no, no, I mean, that that was, so watching, I have to say, editing with him was a life-changing experience for me because I realized how much you can get out of movie film if you really look at it carefully and, pull, and change, you know, change a frame here, a frame there, and this is the time when you didn't just change a frame by pressing a button. Someone had to go and cut it and splice it together and look at it, and then if you took the two frames out and it didn't work, you have to put the two frames back. <laughs> you ever tried to splice two frames back? That is no fun. So, so everything was, which is why you need two editors. You yes. would meet and talk we'd meet and talk with, with Bob, and then while he was recutting his bit, he'd go and talk to the other editor about another part of the film. But I would say one other thing about Bob, which is interesting, is he was a Republican, and he was kind of worried that we were gonna do a hatchet job on Nixon. He was not a great Nixon fan, but he was a, he didn't like the idea of the Republicans being made to look like complete complete Yes. So, the way the movie ends uh, was under much discussion, and we actually had a different ending for the movie, uh, which is, right now it ends, because the biggest, one of the problems with the story is you have a very good, clear beginning. When they find the tape on the door and they capture the burglars, that's the natural beginning to the story because that's when the story starts. But the story doesn't end until re- until Nixon is, is basically forced to resign. And that's years later yes. after a lot of stuff has happened that had nothing to do with these guys. So you can't follow it through to them. How do you end the movie? Well, uh, I think this is Bob Goldman's uh Bill, Bill was probably his best contribution was I think he decided to figure out where to end it, which was when the boys were at their worst in their worst moment when they made this huge mistake and, and and it looked like they were done for. That's when the movie ends. And that's the last real scene in the movie. And then you see them typing away. And what happens is this kind of a montage after that, where you realize Nixon becomes president and he's all this huge moment of glory. And you realize, it. so, but they're still typing, they're still typing, they haven't given up, they haven't given up. And then, you dissolve through to this telex, to the telex machine, which I shout with Gordon, uh, about all the things that happened to the people, which is, the, and the telex machine is giving you all the ending. It tells you, you know, what happened to Colton and Magruder and, and the, all of them with the prison, and all that stuff. But it did it, it did it as part of the, as if it's spewing the information out of the newsroom. Well, in the, in the original version, we had a we packed onto that a video which was a of the helicopter. It says Nixon resigns. That's the last thing and Gerald Ford becomes for whatever thirty eighth president of the United States. That was the last beat of the story as it is now. But then we had a video of the helic of them of Nixon getting in the helicopter with Pat, you know, the presidential helicopter and flying off and waving out of the window vaguely as the helicopter went up and disappeared behind the Washington Monument. Uh, and it's very powerful, and we realized, bye bye,. You know. <laughs> well Bob Wolf, he hated this scene. He called it the boot in the face scene. Yes, because he thought we were just kicking man while he was down. And we said, no, no, it's brilliant. know it sums everything up it makes everyone gives everyone an emotional release they need. And then we ran it for we I mean, ran our first test screening. we only did a couple of those. First test screening, we did it the other way without Bob. You know, to please Bob, we did it without the boot in the face. And what we realized was, he he was right. The movie was so powerful this way that that would have seemed like it was gratuitously piling it on. Yeah. Don't forget half your audience. Yeah.
0: yeah, and I was just gonna say because you know, one of the things we've been chewing over all the way up to talking to you in this discussion and you know, me having read your piece and preparing for this discussion through a lot of different conversations and something I've been thinking about constantly is you are you are really speaking to an audience who is steeped in this story, who knows it inside and out. So for folks who are less familiar with it now, you know, more than 40 years later and watching how it plays it's a it's it becomes sort of a masterstroke of a choice to do that because it leaves you hanging with the facts and just these guys tirelessly working for the truth. Um, whereas exactly, you know, m- maybe that's a scene that 40 years later might've played to an audience who was completely unfamiliar, but you want to hope, you want to consistently hope that people have at least some rudimentary understanding of how historically significant the events that are being played out in this movie are. So, you know, right then you imagine that they don't need to know, they don't need yeah. to know the details. You know, there Absolutely. are people who've, this has occupied their news day every single day for two years and, and they still come yeah. out. I and,
2: mean, it, that's, that's, that's the problem exactly. In fact, they did market research, Warner Brothers did before we made the movie, and they told them not to do it because they said no one will be interested in this. Yes. They've already lived all this stuff, and now not only that, it's gonna come out a year from now. So uh, it took a lot of persuading to get them to do it on Redford's part, and that was one of Redford's huge contributions. But, but the idea also that half your audience was primed to hate it and think it was just a hatchet job by a bunch of Democrats to get the next Democrat elected. And so it couldn't have any feeling of that at all. People were so sensitive to that um, that that you, uh, you know, I have to say we didn't consciously, I mean, we we were we were doing what we were doing, which mercifully had nothing to do with that. You know what I mean? It was about this confessional urge. It wasn't about who was right and who was wrong and the nature of but, Nixon, you know, who Nixon was and all that. Anyway.
0: So. Is, is um, I, I know we've just, we referenced it. I'm, I'm desperately trying to get my hands on a copy of this documentary um, about the great Alan Pakula. I know that it's floating around. It was in the festival circuit. It probably would have already been released uh, right now um, had the quarantine <laughs> Uh, not occurred Um, uh, it would it would have been out somewhere and maybe on uh, available on video on demand but is there anything you can say about why because in my mind there's no other filmmaker in the world that could have that that really could have mixed this film into what it is rather than Mr. Pakula and so I just wonder John if there's you know you know you having met him, you having worked so closely with him and, and now later on hearing his peers and people in the film industry that have been influenced by his work and and so sort of moved by his work and and, and, and just tried to emulate some of his craft in, in some of their films. Um, you know, what, what is it about him that you observed up close and personal besides your anecdote around the listening? Is there any other insights you can give us as to why you maybe think that he's the only guy that could have wrangled this all together?
2: Uh, yeah. Um, just, uh, just along these lines, when we had that first screening, I've been living with this movie, you know, day and night for months and months and months. Uh, and I the silence, you know, and all the stuff's coming out. And I realized, wait, there's no heroes here. There's, there's no bad guys. There's no, all the stuff that you don't have in a movie that's there. I'm, I'm being really scared. I'm saying, Oh my God, what do we do? And, and I lean over to him in this, this is in Arizona or something. This is an intellectual movie, I said. <laughs> he says, yes. He says, don't tell anybody. <laughs> so th- that was essentially uh, one of the keys to him is that he was very much that way, but that he was also, he was, that someone could be that smart on the abstract level, uh, but also be that good with actors. Generally, people who are good with actors have a different persona, you know what I mean? They're more touchy-feely, they're more emotive, they're more like another actor. Whereas Alan uh, was very formal in a way. I mean, he was very, he never would have, no uh, Me Too kind of problems with him at all. He'd run to the other corner of the room if he saw some woman taking aim at him. Um, but, and, and it was, but it wasn't just that, it was, he wasn't interested in that stuff in the movie making. The other stuff was too complicated and interesting. And the, if you're talking to Meryl Streep, she has a huge gift. You get, she's giving you a great gift and you have to figure out what to do with it and help her make it, give you the best possible gift. So I would say the combination of that rigor, the intellectual rigor and getting the precision with the editing and all of that, and the ability to make a story which is unique in the world by, for the reasons we've said, and to get world class performances from wonderful actors, every single one of them, that each character has a backstory, each character you feel is a fully inhabited person, because why? Because Alan took the time with each character and helped them and made them. And wouldn't wouldn't settle for anything but that. So, and actors when they talk about working with him, tend to get very emotional about uh, how how they how freeing it was. Um, and he, they, his scenes tend to be longer and slower rhythmically, but that doesn't mean that they're slower emotionally because what that space fills in when the scene's working is the kind of emotional intensity, the way you were talking about, which makes that, those moments feel full and you don't want them any less, you know, one of the big tricks directors have to learn how to do is to stretch time. And Alan was very good at that.
0: When we, we've just been so, pour, I mean, we've we've just been pouring over a minute of an Oscar nominated performance from Jane Alexander. One thing I want to talk to you because I know that you were in Burbank in the in the Washington Post set and you were on set there. Can you talk about Mr. Jason Robards and being on set with him and you know, I, I think it's 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 hard for any of us to imagine, but when you guys are watching assembly cuts of this movie and you're watching it play with audiences, did you have a sense then? I I know that it was so incredibly well received critically at the time and then obviously was Oscar nominated very narrowly beat, beaten out um, at, at the end of there by Rocky um, but can you talk a little bit about you know watching Robards work and watching these other actors work at the time because I, I think that you know one one character that continues to come up in a lot of dialogue about this movie is Jason Robards as Ben Bradley yes well you
2: see I will say to Alan's credit he was very Get this out of the actors is not a group effort. Yes, he does it alone with those guys.
0: So yes. I was not
2: part of any of that. Yes, once in a while I would think I would be called in if there, if there was a legal problem with the scene and they needed to make sure that the dialogue was because they say it they have people saying things and if we had sometimes it had to be exactly what was in the book. Yes, because it was otherwise a legal issue. But there weren't very many of those situations, and so I I. I didn't have that. The one person who did have that experience was Karen Wookie, the script supervisor, who uh, was the invisible, you know, fly on the wall writing notes. Um, but no, But I would say J- Jason Robards. Um, actually, the, the reason originally Redford wanted Hal Ashby to, to uh, direct this movie. Um, it, Robert Redford had the rights to the movie and the only reason it got made at all was because Robert Redford was such a powerful person and he thought it was really important to make. Yes. It would never have happened without his pushing against amazing resistance. So, um, he wanted Hal Ashby because he liked He liked what he did, uh, with the last detail, um, which is the movie, uh, with Jack Nicholson, uh, yeah. Who yeah. was, gave a tremendous performance? As these, these were, these were police, these were uh, a army man. guys. A terrific man, Hila's, yeah, bringing back of this band. Anyway, but Hal, Hal, Ashby had that quality that actors love. But he was also this was the era of, of being drug inflected and, and hippy and cool. So he was that kind of loosey, loose, loose hippy, smart. It's not that he's not smart. It's not that he's not good, but that's his style. That that's who he, that's who he is. And the Washington Post is everyone's wearing khaki pants, and everyone is uh, you know, and and they all having lunch at St. see and everything is very proper. And so the idea of this guy invading the Post and sitting around being one of these people was just not going to work. It would have been too uh, difficult. I mean, they they wouldn't have. Uh, would have been oil and water. That's at least what people were figuring. So, whereas Alan Pakula, who went to Yale and the Hill School before that, uh, and he always wore a blazer and a tie, his idea of rakish was to wear a handkerchief around his neck <laughs> instead of a necktie. Uh, so, and this is back in the in the seventies when you know people were seriously wild and crazy. Um, so, anyway, so he. He fit in perfectly with those people and he probably knew them already socially, one way or another. So so um that was uh um I don't know where I was going with this. But but um were we always talk I'm sorry, I oh, lost no, no no where that's okay. No, about- no, we're just we're just
0: talking about um working with actors and watching robots and, and oh, how Oh, and oh how- it's
2: about Jason Robards, Right. Jason Robards versus uh Ben Bradley. Right. So uh, I think, uh, uh, I, I don't. Uh, I, I didn't, I mean, I thought he was doing fine. I didn't think, I didn't get that sense of being blown away the way I did when I saw Jamie Allen He was doing a brilliant job of capturing what that man was. But see, one of the things Redford did to this was, I mean, the Coola did was, Redford originally wanted to do a verite movie like The Last Detail is, is sort of in that style. Um, whereas, uh, uh, you know, like a cinema verite handheld push film, grainy, um, and he, he was going to dye his hair and all of that and and look and just disappear into the movie. And Alan said, no, you don't want to do that. He said, what Hollywood does is it takes the normal and it sort of makes it into something special you know it, it, it transcends the normative and that's what this movie needs because this is a, mo- a moment in time where we changed history and so these things are really mundane and boring and obvious but you have to have the sense of, of a movie star doing them who's kind of elevating this higher level so redford uh kula convinced redford to do that to be, let him be robert redford on screen you know yes. and uh And let them have their presence, movie star presence, because the thing about a movie star presence is the reason they're movie stars is because the audience is invested in them and they care more because it's happening to these people and they feel it more uh, and it feels special. So that was, and one of the, you were talking about how boring and mundane a lot of this stuff is, and it is. One way to counter that is to have it done by. Robert Redford. You watch Robert
0: <laughs> Redford do anything, and and what's then, a, what? I would I would imagine that Miss Cephal would have thought it was a very funny joke. That literally, there's a moment, you know, what is what is the old saying? There's nothing more boring than someone, you know, watching someone read the phone book, and you literally watch Robert Redford in this movie <laughs> navigate his way through phone books, and it's compelling. It's compelling, John. It's that, it shouldn't be. It shouldn't funny. be. I
2: haven't
0: thought of that. It shouldn't be.
2: That's very funny. And you know, interestingly enough, uh, Alan uh, hired Redford when he was unknown for a movie called Inside Daisy Clover, where he played the love interest, uh, and sort of got him one of his starts in the business. Um, But the other thing, the other way you elevate something and make it special like that is by the cinematography. And that's the thing that that Gordon Willis does. I mean, he did that for the Godfather movies, which he shot too brilliantly. And he creates a, a world which is a, like, again, it transcends the real, but it feels real. And it makes us, we lose ourselves in it and we overwhelmed by its power. And that's a very tricky thing to do. I became a, a reasonably good friend of his in the process of because I wanted to learn about this as much as I could. And he was living, we were shooting in LA and he's living on the East Coast. So he spent a lot of time, a lot of time to kill. And I'd sit around and sort of pick his brain. But he, and he loved talking about stuff like this. And he lived for this. And he had the whole movie in his head. That's the thing is in a way that even Alan didn't because when Gordon Gordon was like a dyslexic person who thinks in pictures, you know, he literally saw each picture. I and mean, he had the thing cut together in his mind and how this picture would hit that picture. And at a level of detail and specificity that you can't conceive until you start putting the two movies together and you realize what he was thinking about when he did it. and. So that was really important to the movie, too, because Alan uh, was a wonderful director, as I've been saying, but this is another skill. This is a visual skill which very few people have. And Alan, again, that's one of being a good director and also having been a good producer, he gave Gordon his head. He he gave Gordon a job and then he trusted him with it. So he would say, I want to shoot this in close-ups, I want to have the sense of this and that, and then Gordon would figure out where to put the camera, and figure out how to create the feeling that Alan said he was trying to get out of the scene. So, um, and uh, that's, so one of the things that's brilliant about this movie, and I think to compare it to Spotlight, if you don't mind, which is a fine film, but I don't think, you know, we're talking about something else here. Uh, This movie really has to be seen big to be appreciated. This movie is made to be seen on the big screen. And that's Gordon Willis's achievement. Because when you think about it, it's people sitting around talking. Yes. And, and depth. desks. And and most movies like that, like Spotlight, work just fine on the small screen. Because they're 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 not but but, but these guys, uh, Willis and, and Alan were thinking about the architecture, a bigger architecture, feeling dealing with space in a different way. And having a sense of volume and a sense of of mystery that you can only get on the big screen, like the, the scenes in the uh in the garage, for instance, or the scene with the uh uh Library of Congress pullback. Um but also just the way Gordon used the camera. He didn't for instance he didn't uh move the camera a lot. If you look at Spotlight or a movie like that, whenever anyone gets up and moves in a busy place like the like the uh newsroom, you you Follow them where they're going. You know that's what you do. That's what you do. That's, that's why not. You know, when well, you look at this movie and the camera doesn't do that, the first move, the first time the camera moves is in the newsroom. Is twenty minutes into the movie. Our time, <laughs> which is which is you're you're still set shots until until Robert Redford has written this uh, has written his first his story and he stuck it in the in basket and Wood, uh, Bernstein wants to get on the story. So he goes, he looks at it, he sneaks a view, and then he grabs it, and he starts retyping it himself. Yes. Rewriting Redwood's story, and of course, Ber- Woodward doesn't like this, but he keeps working awake Woodward being Woodward, and then he sees Red- uh, Bernstein try and do it again, and then he gets up, and then he walks toward Bernstein, and that, when he gets up and walks toward Bernstein, the camera moves too. And that's like a big jolt, like, oh my God, what's gonna happen to this guy? The camera's moving, he's gonna kill him, you know? And then of course, and then they have their scene, and and you talked about how these are understated, muted scenes, and they are, they're beautifully, and that's because you you don't have to be hyped, you know? That camera movement, which is invisible to most people, creates that sense inside the person without having the actor get all angry. And of course, Redford is a master at underplaying this stuff, too. so so you have this sense of uh, architecture to the shot so you look at the number of times there are dolly shots in that in that big newsroom and there are only three or four in the whole movie and there are crucial points in the movie um, things like that He'll never he'll never uh, tilt uh, he'll, he'll never tilt up and down when, when people move uh, when people sit down he'll, he'll, he'll never like sit down with them he'll he'll keep the camera so that you're not conscious of the camera's place. Like for instance, you never use a zoom lot. you never zoom, because when you zoom, you change the architecture of the space. Uh, when you go from a long lens to a short lens or something in the zoom and that feels phony, it pulls you out of the story, it, according to Gordon Willis. So that's going on too, it's part of the things that make this movie so powerful.
0: Yeah the, the more that the more that we talk on this show and the more that I talk to you sort of underscoring the different elements that we've talked to up into this point is just there's you know I it, it's it's I don't want to sound hokey but there's a ma- there's a magic to all of the things that are going on at the same time I've used the word alchemy before but it's like it's not just these amazing performances it's not just Alan's command of what he wants to do with the actors and knowing what he wants in in each of these huge but very sort of understated, sort of moral quandaries that are going on. It's not just Gordon Willis. It's not just the script. It's 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 not and then it's not just the editing and then being able to say you know you know much like that great scene where Woodward says uh, you know where Woodward confesses that he's a Republican and 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 Bernstein like looks like he's been shot by a bolt of lightning in the chest in the movie. You know, it's that having having those yeah. different perspectives together to go no don't don't kick him while it's down. It's much more artful to do it this way. But Alan being open enough to to let it play like that, just all those all those elements that we've just been discussing, it feels like there's there's some something in the alchemy of this movie that makes it so 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 unique. Um, because it it shouldn't it shouldn't be it shouldn't be able to have you know it shouldn't have so many divergent voices that come perfectly together and harmonize, but it seems to. And the more I'm talking to you today, the more I'm just like it's it's just this yeah. incredible feat. So, uh,
2: I agree, and I think that's the thing that's hard to understand if you haven't tried to make movies a little bit, because this is that's what it feels. It feels like a miracle, just for all the reasons that you say. Any one of those things would make a good movie. Yes, and the idea that they all come together, also about a movie that is about a light, an epical moment in American history. On top of all that, is uh, just the chances of having all of that come together. The number of things that can go wrong to keep that from happening as my mind boggling and the more, and the more movies you work on, the more you, re- you feel as things go wrong and you see things that almost work. You see this and that that so many ways this could this could have become just a mundane movie from writing the script right through to the finished film to editing it. Uh, and somehow, and this I have to say Robert Redford deserves a lot of credit for because he was the real producer in those days. Um, Actors didn't like to put their names on it as producers. So Walter Coburn, who was a fine, competent, uh, you know, good guy, but he worked for for Redford, was not making the creative decisions. Robert Redford was making the creative producing decisions. Yeah, and um, and and he, whatever he did, he chose for cool. he got the right, uh, he got the other actors, and he got, and and he got uh, the screen right, the screenplay right. It was a huge, huge battle, too. A battle so bad that even though Bill Goldman won the Oscar for the screenplay, he still uh, rejects it. He still doesn't like to think about it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) No, no. But it's it's just like that great throwaway line in your piece um, from Hoffman. Like, look at all the work we're doing, and this guy's still going to get the envelope. I love that. I I I (laughs) I love that. That's such an industry. It's one of the coolest industry lines in your piece around, look at this work we're doing, this guy's still going to get the envelope. It's very very cool.
2: Well, anyway, I, I so I felt very lucky to be part of it. Of course, when I'm that young and starting like that, you don't realize how unusual, really unusual, it is. Uh, and they aren't all going to be like that, you know. You sort of think they all are, and then, of course, they aren't. But well, well it's a once in a lifetime opportunity.
0: Well, this, this was a once in a lifetime conversation on this show, John. So I just wanted to, while, while we're still on air, thank you so wholeheartedly for joining me today to break the rules on this minute and, and dissect it and to hear your sort of first person experiences. And, and then now, you know, being able to go back and reflect um, with the sort of like the hindsight of 2020 vision and, and, and talking about how that alchemy is such a, a thing that is rare. Um, and, and so, so rarely brilliant about this movie I just want to say thank you so much for your insights thank you for sharing and I think if anyone who um, has been enjoying this show along the way uh, is going relish, to uh, relish hearing your, your take but uh, it's just a real pleasure to chat to you today and I just want to say thank you so much
2: well thank you for making it possible
0: Kenny Turin the incredibly iconic former LA Times film critic thank you so much for making the introductions that made this show happen, uh, I'm, I'm just floored by your generosity. Thank you, Justin Chang, Kenny's mentee, uh, protege, and now graduating into the master, killing it at LA Times. Um, thank you, Justin, for being a, a part of the show and b introducing me to the icon, John Borston. What an amazing, just what an amazing man. What an amazing insight. What an unbelievable behind-the-scenes glance we get at just how this incredible, really explosive and powerful and just unbelievable film was made. Thank you so much for listening to All the President's Minutes. This has been one of our favourites to produce for you. It's one of my favourites personally to host and one of my favourite conversations in any of the One Heat Minute productions. A real treat. I hope you enjoyed it. We have so many more wonderful interviews and so many more wonderful guests coming. Uh, thank you so much for listening. OneHeatMinute.com, at one minute on socials. We'll catch you on the next episode coming very, very soon.